Romans chapter 16. I'll start in verse 17 and read down to verse 20. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's begin in verse 17. <clears throat> Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Join me as we pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we do pray that the grace that has saved us will be the grace that sustains us, that you might restore to us the joy of our salvation, that the joy of the Lord might be our strength, that you would strengthen us in a unity that is centered on and never strays far from the cross of Jesus. So I ask now for your people that you'll speak from your word in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The word is unity. Unity. Unified. Unity in any organization is a necessary element if that organization is going to have any modicum of success. Whether it's a football team or a... Division of Marines or a Fortune 500 company. If a company is not clear on its vision and on its purpose, then it will flounder and eventually fail. Now, if that is true on a lower, lesser level, then I would say it is also true on a higher, holier level. Especially when we talk about the church. A church that is unified and clear on its mission and its purpose can really be a formidable movement in the kingdom of God and the cause of the gospel. That's what Paul says right here. Romans chapter 16. Here we are in the last paragraph of this letter that he wrote to that small church down in Rome. And isn't it interesting that the very final push, the last thing Paul says to the church is a warning about divisions and those that cause factions. Isn't it interesting that the very last thing Paul talks about is church unity? I think that's important. I think it should be one of the primary goals that we as a church Press toward as we seek genuine church health and genuine church strength and genuine church growth. But be careful. Oftentimes when you hear the word unity, you feel like that we need to make it so that everybody gets along all the time. Make sure you read it. Now, verse 17, 18, 19, and 20. Make sure you read what the warning is here in Romans 16. It happens in churches. Churches divide over all kinds of things. Sometimes 
Sometimes churches divide over politics. Sometimes churches divide over attitudes. Sometimes churches divide over how you approach race. And those are worthwhile discussions to have, but right here in this passage, that's not really what Paul is talking about. Paul is warning about something more subtle and seductive, something more satanic and destructive. His final call in Romans chapter 16 is a call to expose false teachers and a false gospel. How relevant, it seems to me, how relevant I find this passage for the world that we live in right now. Now the spirit of this passage, it is I mean, it is Paul calling for unity, no doubt. But as you read it, realize that he's not talking about unity for unity's sake. He is talking about a strong and unified church, but he's saying that a strong and unified church is unified around the essential truths of the Bible and a clear preaching of the gospel. And the warning here in this passage. Now, there are other warnings in other places. But the warning here is against those not with bad attitudes or rough demeanors. The warning is against nice people. Uh, the warning that Paul uses, it's against smooth talkers. Uh, the warning is against smooth talkers that keep you captivated with nice talk all the while poisoning the water while you're not looking. And Paul gives us a warning here about the church. He says, look, you need to take this into your church and stand vigilant. And he gives us very real steps right here in the passage, very real steps that we can take, that you can take, to make sure that we are true to what Jude called the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. So if I had to sum it up, and I guess we need to, uh, for a theme today, I, I always try to make the theme statement pretty short and memorable so you can write it down. Today's might have a comma in it. It's a little longer. So forgive me. I worked on it hard, but this is all the best I could come up with. It's about real Christianity. Real Christianity. I'll say it like this. Real Christianity has boundaries. And those boundaries must be protected. Genuine Christianity. There, there is a boundary that says this is Christian, and on the other side of the boundary, it is not Christian. And it is important as a church that we do what Paul says, and that is protect the boundaries of real Christianity. I think Paul gives at least five. I'll put it five. I think Paul gives at least five ways to protect doctrinal lines of biblical Christianity. Some of you remember the uh, great Bible teacher and expositor Warren Wiersbe. You might even have his commentaries. Warren Wiersbe was one of the very first to put, down, put out popular commentaries on expositional preaching. And he had this series called the B Series. And I can't remember all the name and titles of them, but I, I've, I think that's what I was thinking about when I went to my points today. So here's the first one, number one. Be vigilant. Be vigilant about the let me show you where I get that. You'll find it in verse 17. When you read verse 17, uh, let's, let's read it and let's see what he's urging them to do. It's not quite a command, but it almost is. 
and then we'll come back and take it apart. Verse 17, Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out. That's one imperative. Watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles that are contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Here's the second imperative. Avoid them. Now, before we get to those two things, let's go back to the very middle of verse 17. Do you see that phrase, the doctrine that you have been taught? Your Bible might say the teaching. That should be in parentheses or in quotations because what he's talking about is a genuine body of beliefs. He's talking about a corpus of what Christians actually believe. Romans 6, he calls it the standard of teaching. 2 Timothy 1, he tells Timothy it is the pattern of sound words, or he even says it is the good deposit. Jude says it is the faith that is once and for all delivered to the saints. J.R.W. Stott, the great Anglican expositor and scholar, he says that when you go to talk about what Christianity is, it has to be biblical, it has to be Christ-centered, and it has to be moral. When you read this text, you find out what the danger is. And the danger, we've got to make sure we are not superficial people here. The danger is not attitude. The danger is not feelings. The danger is not worship style. The danger can't be how people dress when they go to church. All of those things don't mean a thing. The danger that Paul is addressing here is the false teacher that creates stumbling and division. Look with me at the command of verse 17. Watch what he says there. Verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out. Who are you watching out for? For those that cause divisions and create obstacles. That word is the word for scandal, scandalon. Who are these people? Are they mean people? What are they doing? Is it because they have a bad attitude? No, they're creating obstacles that are contrary to what you've been taught. Contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught, avoid them. That first phrase, watch out. It's two English words. It really comes from one Greek word. It is the Greek word skopeo, skopeo. It's where we get the word scope. If you're a hunter, you don't want to use iron sights unless you're on the frontier. You might put a scope on your rifle so you can see that which is far away, bring it up close so that you can be effective. If you're looking at the moon, you might use a telescope that takes that which is far away, brings it close so you can see it. If you're a scientist, you might use a microscope that takes that which you can't see with the naked eye and brings it up so that you can study it. Paul says, scope those people. You look at them hard. John Chrysostom, I mentioned him a couple of weeks ago, the preacher from the 4th century, John Chrysostom called the golden mouth. I wish I had not said, I wish people would call me the golden mouth. Got all kind of bizarre emails from people this week. I even ended up having some, uh, which was pretty good, some golden Oreos show up in my house. So that was a good gift. Because if I ate enough, I would be a golden mouth. John Chrysostom, when he looked at this passage, this word right here, he says that word scopeo means to study, to be exceedingly particular about what the material is, to get acquainted with it. To search it out thoroughly. When you hear something and it doesn't resonate with the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we cannot adopt a casual attitude to false teachers. And when I say false teachers, I have primarily uh, categories, things like the prosperity gospel. You've heard the prosperity gospel. We talk about the prosperity gospel some. 
When I say prosperity gospel, I mean uh, people like Kenneth Copeland. Maybe you've seen some of the ridiculous videos that he's put out or, or Benny Hinn, some of that ridiculous, or Paula White had something out recently. That, that when, when I say prosperity gospel, I like think most of you think about that, and that doesn't, uh, it's not going to fool you. You can see how ridiculous that is. What I'm worried about oftentimes is that which is downstream from what is the mainstream prosperity gospel, that which has infected the true gospel slipping into the church, prosperity gospel. Or, or you might hear something like the social gospel, the social gospel that takes all of the focus and puts it on doing justice when in fact Christians should always do and treat people justly, but it must emanate from the cross of Jesus and not replace the cross of Jesus. Or, flip on the other side, or the political gospel, where politics becomes such a lens by which you see everything, you forget the centrality of the cross of Jesus. What scares me a lot of times is the almost gospel. So many churches will preach that which goes around and around the gospel and never actually get to the gospel. So we got to ask questions. If we're going to be discerning people, if we will be Bereans, we, we must ask the right questions. When you hear something, you ask, does this agree with the plain reading of the Bible? The plain reading of the Bible is always the best. Does it agree with the plain reading of the Bible? Or you, you might ask a question about a movement. Does this movement make the cross of Jesus the priority? When I say the cross of Jesus, I mean the substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross in the place of sinners and that being the only means of salvation. We might ask the question, does it, does it glorify Jesus? Is Jesus the center of this movement? Does this movement promote a goodness that Jesus would recognize? Or when it comes to how people are saved, that's a really good question. You ask how in this, in this movement are people saved? Does it emphasize salvation? We use the five solas, you know Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the Bible alone, and to the glory of God alone. You see, right here in the text, verse 17, you have an antidote to the false gospel. Let me show you where, where it is, right there in verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and they create obstacles. Those divisions and obstacles are contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. The doctrine that you have been taught. You know what the antidote to the false gospel is? Is the true gospel that you've been taught. It's, it's why we... You know, expository preaching is not... Uh, it's not a lot of fun to listen to sometimes. It's not flashy. It's nobody riding a motorcycle up on the stage. Nobody coming in on a trapeze. We just open the Bible, read it, and then what does the Bible say? There's a reason behind that, so that it doesn't really take somebody with great talent to do it. You just get a man up here to read the Bible and teach it, which is not great job security for me, but you get the idea, right? We want the emphasis to be on the Bible. It's why we do the kind of worship we do, that the, the songs are expressive and theologically sound. It's why we have our children's ministry like it is, centered around not entertainment, but memorizing the Scripture. It's why we have small group accountability. It's why our student ministries run the way it is. It's why when you go into our resource center, you walk in there, we want to provide robust theological reading. Now, I could say more here, but I just want to say that 
The first command you find, number 17, is to be vigilant. We, we've got to be vigilant about the faith. There's something else there you'll find, number two. Number one is be vigilant about the faith. Number two, be careful what you let in. Or you, you might write down, be careful who you let in. What I mean by that is, be careful what you let into your life, or be careful who you let into your life. Go with me to see this. You have the second command in verse 17. It's at the end of verse 17. And then verse 18 is the actual explanation as to why we are to avoid them. Let's read it, and we'll talk about it. Verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles that are contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Here comes the second command. Avoid them. Why? Verse 18. For such persons, and you feel the contempt in Paul's life, those people, such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. Let's stop there. What does Paul say? Avoid them. Get away from them. Give no opportunity for those people to get into your life. Let me just say that every single false teacher that has a false gospel wants an opportunity to have an actual friendly discussion with you. Look how Paul describes them in verse 18. He says they do not serve. You see that word? They do not serve the Lord Christ. That word serve is the word Greek word doulos is where we get slave. When Paul talks about being a slave to Christ, uh, he's saying they are not. They're not even converts, he's saying. They don't serve Christ. He says they serve their, their bellies, if you have the King James, their, their appetites. They serve themselves. Notice how, look how he talks about them in verse 18. There's a word there in verse 18 that you don't see anywhere else in the entire New Testament. Let me show it to you. Verse 18, he says, For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and they do it by smooth talk. Only time in the New Testament. Smooth talk. It's hard to define something. When you come up on a word that's only one time in the Bible, you don't have other verses to compare it to and how it's used other places to get an idea of its semantic domain, what it, what it might mean and how it's been used. We don't know. So you have to go outside of, you have to go outside of the Greek New Testament to ancient Greek, and you find it there. The word smooth talk is someone that is able to deceive people by their plausible way of putting things. To be, to be able to take something that's false, but say it in such a way it actually sounds true. Smooth talk. We, we might use the phrase, a con man. Someone that speaks well, but does evil. One, one writer says that, um, that smooth talk is the language of a good man that is used by a bad man. It seems nice. Smooth talk. In fact, Paul uses the word and flattery. You see that in verse 18? The word flattery is uh, the word we have for eulogy. It's where we get the word eulogy. So it's a good word, flattery. Um, it's a good word. You go to a funeral and you are in charge of giving the eulogy. Typically, you're going to say really good things about the person you're eulogizing. Do you understand here that it, that Paul is not warning us about the blunt and the brash or the rude or the loud or the abrupt people. We don't need a warning about them. We can, we can pick them out. 
At least you know what you're getting. That's not what he's warning here. Those aren't the worst people. The worst people in the church aren't the ones that speak and do so roughly. It's those that are smooth talking. That are good sounding. That feels like the truth. I mean, surely this is what Jesus meant in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. <clears throat> Jesus says, beware, beware of the false prophets. Why are you being, because here's what they're going to do. They're coming to you looking like a sheep. They look like you. They come in sheep's clothing, but underneath all of that, there is a ravenous wolf. Look, look what Paul, look what he says. Look what he says about who's in the most danger. It's at the end of verse 18. He's warning the whole church, but he's saying there's somebody in the church that's in genuine danger of this false gospel. Verse 18. Such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. They do it by smooth talk and by flattery. And here's who they deceive. They deceive the hearts of the naive, of the simple. That is not a term of condescension. Paul is not saying they, he deceives the hearts of those that are really just ignorant. That's not what he's saying. He's saying someone that has come to faith and yet has not been discipled, has not started to grow. It's the unlearned person. Look, we, we've got to avoid some things when, when it comes to being a Christian. One thing you've got to avoid is cynicism. Some of you are just straight cynics. You don't trust anybody. You hear something, you're like, no, that's not true. Just just. So we've got to avoid uh, straight cynicism. The other thing that we've got to avoid, that I'm afraid that so many people have not grown in the faith, we've got to avoid gullibility. Believing something just because it sounds right. One of the things we try to do here with discipleship and also with some of the resources we put in our resource center is to make sure you have good theological books that have strength in them. One of the things that's been most helpful to me, there's a company called Kregel, K-R-E-G-E-L, Kregel. And they're putting out a series called 40 Questions. One book that we've used here is uh, 40 Questions About How to Interpret the Bible. That is a great book if you want to learn how to read the Bible. 40 Questions About How to Interpret the Bible. They've just come out with one uh, called 40 Questions About Biblical Theology. Any of those books would be helpful to you as you seek to grow deep so that you are able to discern when you hear something, you know whether it's the truth or not. We need to be vigilant about the faith and we need to be careful what we let in or who you let in. Let me give you a third thing to consider. I think you'll find it down in verse 18 and verse 19. And that is to be obedient. Number three, be obedient to what you already know. Be obedient to what you know. There, there are a lot of you sitting here today, you've, you've absorbed a whole, a whole lot of sermons, uh, you've read the Bible through, you've been in Sunday school, you've been discipled, and you actually have a good bit of knowledge. One of the great things for you to do when it comes to defending the faith is just to actually live out what you already know. Let me show you where I get there. Get that. It's the, it's the first part of verse 19. This is what Paul writes. For your obedience, your obedience, now remember, he's in Corinth. He's a town a long way away from Rome. He's heard about him. Your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. Your obedience is known. You know something happens? 
Something happens to the congregation when the people that go to church at whatever church start taking the Bible seriously. Something happens when the men and women that are members of a church call themselves Christians, start acting like Christians and asking God to help them live their lives for Jesus. A couple of things. One, if you do that, it's going to be obvious about you. It'll be obvious. Let me show you what I mean. It's right there in verse 19. Paul says to that church, your obedience is known to everybody. I've never been to Rome. I've never met most of those people at Rome. But I've heard about how they're living their life. And your obedience to Jesus is known. You know, we live in such a world. We live in a sinful enough world with enough backward morality That if you just simply, just a simple, as a Christian, you just simply live as a Christian, it will soon enough be obvious to everybody around you that there's something different about you. And not only that, there is something real different about you, that you are a Christian. If if you this morning, maybe you already do, if not, you call yourself a Christian, I'm just going to invite you, maybe challenge you. If you take the Lordship of Jesus Christ seriously, like the church at Rome did, then the people around you will know it. Did the people around you know it? Your student, do the student, do the people you go to school with? Do the people that you go to school with, is it obvious to everyone that you in fact are a follower of Jesus? The people you work with, a lot of you here work in really hostile environments. Environments that are not conducive to being a Christian. And if you live as a Christian, it becomes obvious if you have views on biblical sexuality, for instance. Do the people around you know that? Do the people that you live with know? Look, if you're a, if you're a kid here today, when I say kid, you're dependent on your parents. You have to live at their house. Whether you like it or not, you're there. If you're living with parents at home and you call yourself a Christian, is it obvious to your parents? Is it obvious to you respectful and Christ-like at home? It's important. If you're a Christian, you have a role to play in living out your life for Christ. If if you're a parent, do do the people that live with you in your house, is it obvious? Or would they like to tell the rest of us, hey, if you only knew him at home, it'd be different. It's obvious. But when you follow Jesus, Paul says, everybody knows it. It's obvious. There's something else here. Not only will it always, not only will it be obvious, number two in verse 19, it'll be encouraging. You see see what Paul says? Look what he says in verse 19. Your obedience is known to all, and then here's the encouragement. So that I rejoice over you. In other words, I heard about it, and it makes me happy. Their obedience way over in Rome encouraged his heart. Do you know the simple strength? The simple strength that you can put into someone's soul by you just being faithful. I mean, it's one of the big reasons we need to meet together to encourage one another, to see each other's lives, to pray with each other, to strengthen each other. All of us that love Jesus, every one of us here, everyone that loves Jesus and has been 
you've been alive for any amount of time, you have felt it. You, you felt the bewildering pain of seeing someone that you always thought was a Christian. You always thought that he was a solid believer. It's bewildering to watch that person walk away from the faith or, or live like he's not a Christian. It's, it's hard to even do the math on it. If that's the case, the opposite is also true. To see brothers and sisters, just regular brothers and sisters, growing strong in Christ through the hard work of spiritual disciplines and discipleship. Isn't that what John meant? You know, the Apostle John, he wrote the, the Gospel of John, then 1st and 2nd and 3rd John. And in 3rd John chapter 1, verse 4, he talks about people that he discipled. And John says, I have no greater joy, there's no greater joy in my heart than to see my children that they're walking in the truth. We need to be vigilant about the faith. We need to be careful who we let in. We should be obedient. We live it out, it becomes a witness. Be obedient to what you already know. I'd like to put a fourth one and underline it, go quickly by it. Number four, need to be wise about your choices. Wise. You see the word wisdom there in verse 19? Let me, let me read it to you, verse 19. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but... I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Wise as to what is good. Wisdom is knowledge and experience. Wise as to what is good. Have a, have a strong and smart handle on what it is to actually live a godly lifestyle. In fact, Paul says it like this. Not only do I want you to be wise as to what is good, I want you to be innocent as to what is evil. You don't have to know it. You don't have to experience it. Don't flirt with it. Don't do what some Christians do. Don't see how close to the line you can get without falling over. Paul says, don't be innocent to that. Instead, I want you to have a growing depth of, of knowledge and experience in what is good, what is God-honoring, what is Christ-like. I mean, Paul says this same thing a whole lot. He told the church at Corinth and 1 Corinthians 14, 20, Paul says, Brothers and sisters, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. Jesus said it. Jesus said it in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, when he sent his disciples out. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be wise as serpent, innocent as doves. So the choices that you make this week, and you'll, you'll make lots of them this week, you might ask questions before you make the choice. Is this Christ-like? If I do this, is it Christ-like? Is it, is it biblical? If I do this, um, can I tie it to a gospel mission? Is it honoring to the Lord? Is it, is it def if I do this, if I make this decision, is it defensible to my Christian friends? A am I doing this sacrificially or selfishly? If I make this decision, will I be spiritually stretched to grow as a man or woman in Christ? Will this decision bring about long-term godly joy? If I make this decision, does it adorn the gospel? What I mean by that is, does it make the gospel look good? 
You and I must be people that are wise about our choices. Let me give you one last one. Number five. Stand in verse 20. We need to be confident in our God. Confident in our God. Don't you love verse 20? I feel like I've been working two years to get to verse 20. Verse 20 says, let's read it. And let's, let, me, let me read verse 20 and um, watch how fast I am here. I'm going to read verse 20 and I'm going to give you seven. I'm going to read verse 20. I'm going to give you seven reasons why you should trust God. Let me read it. Let's go to work. Verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Why should you be confident in our God? Number one, he is the God of peace. Notice what the text says. The God of peace will crush Satan. The God of wholeness, the God of wellness, the God of soul healing. Some of you have been wounded deeply at the cross of Jesus. You can be healed completely. Peace with God at the cross. Peace with people because of the cross. Peace with yourself because of who you are in Jesus. He is the God of peace and you can trust him. He's not just the God of peace. You'll also notice that he's the God of providence. The text says God will soon crush Satan. That word soon, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, not now, but it's coming. We don't know when. The good thing about God is he doesn't tell us when. He just says soon. His timing is good and it's right and it's perfect and it's soon. Peter says in 2 Peter that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And all of that time waiting, it is filled with hope. He is a God of providence and you can trust him. He's not just a God of providence, he's a God of promise. You see the text? The text says the God of peace will soon crush Satan. Do you hear that language? He will crush Satan that language is an echo of the very first promise made to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Remember that promise? It was in the middle of a curse, and the promise was made to Eve that Jesus would come, that the woman, the woman's seed, Jesus, would crush the head of the serpent. That is a promise that has been kept at the cross, and he will keep all of his promises in Jesus Christ. He is the yes and the amen, and you and trust him. He is a God of sovereignty. Sovereignty. I love the word sovereignty. That just means God is in control. Sovereignty. Verse 20 says that God will soon crush Satan under your feet. Crush Satan. All too often, I feel like people within the church have a wrong view of good and evil. That we somehow see it like Star Wars, that there is a force, a dark side and a light side, and they're battling. That is not at all what the Bible teaches. It's not as if God and Satan were two well-matched foes that are battling one another until the 15th round, and finally, by some great stroke, God wins. That's not how the Bible is written. The Bible is written with the words like this, God crushes Satan. If you like metaphor and analogy... If, if Satan were a poisonous cockroach, then God has a galactic steel boot and he's going to stomp Satan. Next time you stomp a bug, you can think about Romans 16, 20. Crush. God is sovereign and you can trust him. God is victorious. He is the God of victory. You can trust him. 
The text says in verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. What a great combination. God will crush Satan under your feet, our feet. God, who is sovereign, does the work, crush Satan under our feet. Responsibility is man. You see the language there? Listen to the language. He does the crushing, but it's under our feet. He wins the battle, we get the victory. He wins the war, we get the parade. Isaiah would say it like this. He gets the stripes, we take the healing. He gets the, he gets the cross, we get the forgiveness. He gets the wounds, Isaiah would say, and we get the grace. He's a God of victory, and you can trust Him. He's a God of grace. Christianity is a religion of grace. You, you feel it in the, the back end of verse 20, the grace, of, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Grace is shown in the word Jesus Adam is the first man who took us into sin. Jesus is the second man that brought us out of sin. Jesus, all man. Christ, that is to say, he is also all God, that only one could ever do it, one who is fully God and fully man. Jesus Christ, the Bible says that it's Jesus Christ and he is Lord, that at every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is a God of grace and you can trust him. He's a God of the gospel, verse 20, the whole verse. The whole verse, verse 20, is the gospel. That the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. It's the gospel. That at the cross of Jesus, God has put to death sin and Satan's effect and your lostness and hopelessness, and right there in all of that is the gospel. And I would just join the chorus of the Bible that says to any of you that haven't to come and taste and see that the Lord is good. You can trust Him. He has shown us His goodness at the cross of Jesus, and that creates real Christianity. Real Christianity has boundaries. Those boundaries are within sight of the cross. They're all around the cross. As, as believers, we've got to be vi vigilant about our faith. We've got to be careful who we let in, what we let in to our lives. We've got to be obedient to what we already know. Many of you, you already know the Bible. Just live it. It comes, it comes a matter of just living it. We need to be wise about our choices. Are they reflective of following Christ, and we need, to be, we need to be confident in our God. I hope you'll live your life this week confident in this good God that you can trust. You join, me as we, join me as we close together in just a few moments of prayer. In fact, why don't you bow your head for just a moment of reflecting? We, we can't really have an invitation right now with all this going on. We can think about what we've heard. So why don't you join me thinking about it? Let's pray together. With your head bowed this morning, I just would like to ask you, what needs to change now? What needs to change in your life to either grow as a disciple? What discipline do you need to begin? What sin do you need to reject? What person do you need to be reconciled with?
What brother do you need to encourage? What sister do you need to lift up to the Lord in prayer? Father, we thank you that you have made us people of grace. That you are the God of peace. And the great hope is you'll crush Satan under our feet. As we wait on that, give us grace and strength. Help us to rejoice in the Lord always. Bless your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.